0: I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 94. Carmelo, thank you for uh, allowing us to read part of that during the worship time. That was uh, very helpful. What I'm going to do is, as I work my way through the message this morning, I'll be reading the text, so I'm not going to take time at the beginning to read. We'll uh, come to that (coughs) in due course. Um, In most of our lives, I think... Because we live in a fallen world, we experience seasons of frustration, uh, being taken advantage of, of uh, just downright wrongs being done to us. Uh, I think there are many different kinds of struggles that we face and that we experience. (coughs) There is in the human heart a natural longing for justice. And yet it is one of the doctrines of God that we struggle with the most. We live in a culture that doesn't like the idea of justice, ideas of the vengeance of God or the wrath of God. That, in our culture, that is difficult theology to preach, and it's difficult theology to swallow, and it's difficult theology to defend out on the public square. Oh, you're one of those that believes in a God who, and you know what's coming. I would argue that a desire for justice... The desire that's expressed in this psalm is a natural desire. It is not a learned desire. It's part of our being made in the image of God. And here's what I think what I would say. It, it, I believe it's a natural desire. And if you said, well, I don't know if I agree with that, I would ask you to watch the NBA Finals Game 7 tonight. Okay? And almost every time a foul is called, what does the player protest? That's not fair. That was not a just call. Okay, you see, grown men virtually crying uh, in the NBA because they got called with a bad foul, and when that apparent or sense of injustice comes up, they don't sit there and say, "How do I respond to this?" Okay, there is a natural, emotive response; it emerges just suddenly. Okay, and the psalmist is writing in the context of an apparent season of trouble. And there is a craving for justice that is rising up within him. I would argue that that response is natural and that the Psalmist struggle is Tim Hoff's struggle and probably it's your struggle as well. We wrestle with this longing for God to do what's right. Tim Keller says the human impulse to make perpetrators pay for their crimes is an almost overwhelming one. The natural want for justice. So when 9-11 hit Some fifteen years ago, there was a the the first thing on the minds of everybody, who did it? And let's have justice, right? When the Air Egypt plane went down a month ago, the the longing, the, the questioning is who did it? When the tragedy in Orlando, Florida occurred last Sunday morning, the natural question is who did it and who's behind it? And they need to pay. It's a natural impulse. You didn't sit back and say, how do you respond to something so vicious and devastating and tragic? You didn't have to sit down and think about it. Naturally in your heart, something rose up. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I think that natural rising up is one of the indications of the image of God in humanity that calls for God, come down, do what's right. It's a natural desire. I would argue that there is a naivety in America today. A naivety that reveals itself in people rejecting entire, ca- entire categories of moral boundaries and categories of sinfulness. Because we don't want to talk about a God who is just and who brings judgment. Most people in our country, and, unfortunately largely throughout the world, want a permissive God who over- overlooks our sin, unless it is an offense that we have received. Then we want justice. It's the amazing schizophrenia that is present in the world you and I live in. Not wanting justice, that's harsh. Wrong me. And hell turns loose. Okay? And it just... So we, we all have a natural tendency to practice it, but our anger, our vengeance is severely tainted by our human nature. And it tends to be corrupted very quickly and very easily. The reason most people struggle with the category of vengeance or the justice of God is because most people think of it as an ill-tempered God exhibiting what one writer called cranky explosions burst. Instead, as we study Scripture, we see that the wrath and vengeance of God understood biblically is not anger as we fallen creatures express it. Instead, it it, it, it is as Piper declares... God settled, listen to this, wrath is God's settled opposition and just response to the cancer of rebellion which is eating out the insides of the human race that He loves with His whole being. It is the settled response of a just God to human rebellion, yet unbelievably patient. Okay, and that's the tension that a lot of this psalm rises up on. I would argue that very few people look at our world today and would honestly look at it with hope. It's hard to look at our world with hope, isn't it? You look around. If you, you just pick up on national news, go to the BBC and look at the news headlines, it, it, is, it is troubling and earth-shattering when you look at the world that we live in today. And the psalmist, in, in his expressions, is living in a world that is very similar where it seems like, for whatever reason, wrong is prevailing. And that rises up within him a desire to go to God and to pray. Now, I want to give you a definition for the wrath of God or the vengeance of God. This is something over the years I've kind of worked on. I've probably stolen all of it from other people, and it's kind of just come together in this kind of a quick summary statement. Okay, the wrath or the vengeance of God that is at the center of this psalm. I would describe it as the seemingly reluctant, yet completely necessary, Response of a holy God to human rebellion. Okay, the seemingly reluctant yet utterly necessary response of a holy God to human rebellion. If God is just, sin must be punished. Okay? Well, let that settle in. The reluctant response yet necessary of a holy God to human rebellion. And it is that that the psalmist request. It is that that the psalmist prays to God to bring. Because as he is watching the activity against the righteous, against good people, against innocent people, not morally righteous, but innocent people that haven't provoked, that are being oppressed, as he watches that, it it builds up in him. It's kind of like if you're at a store and you see Someone being beaten and, and you can do something about it. There's a, a natural desire to want to enter in and to try to help. And that's the psalmist is wrestling with this internal desire to act while knowing that he can't trust his own actions. He needs to give it over to God. And that becomes the tension and the question of this psalm. One writer made this observation. They said, I would argue that the lack of belief in a God of judgment And vengeance, who leaves it all in our hands, is secretly nourishing violence. Okay, that if there isn't a God who one day will bring justice, then I will take it into my own hands. I'll never be able to step back like I did yesterday in the smallest way. I just like I'm just going to leave that with God. Okay, if I don't believe that what romans 12 says vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord then what's going to happen i'm going to take it into my own hands and play the role of god and when that happens it will be utterly dangerous and that largely is the world in which we live and it's one of the scariest aspects of the culture in which we live you know there's a saying that comes up in many protests no justice no peace it's true it's true. I'm not agreeing with all the ideology behind it and all the stuff behind it. But if there is no justice, there will not be peace. And so the psalmist knows that and he cries out to God to respond finally to the pressure that the people of God are facing. We would argue that the strongest deterrent to the, to the danger of ill-fated anger is a deep conviction about the justice of God. And so it's that I want us to poke at and then look at how the psalmist comes to a resolution of the tension that he feels in his heart. So let's enter into this psalm and just I'm going to break it into five pieces. The, the natural breaks in the text, verses one to three, comes first. The psalmist starts out, O Lord. The God who avenges, oh God who avenges, shine forth. So two times he mentions the character of God. He is a God who avenges. What does it mean? He is a God who will bring justice. It's bound up in the nature of God to do what is right. Okay? His mercy is to hold off and give time before doing right comes. But doing right will come. And the psalmist is crying out to God, saying, God, shine forth, show your justice. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. And he's not the, the psalmist isn't asking for an overwhelming shock and awe response. What he's asking for is, just give them what they deserve. Well, that'll be enough. The problem with us is we over-pursue. The psalmist is saying, God, give them what they deserve. It, why? He's watched the oppression. He's seen the strength and the tenacity of it. And it started, it's, it's eating at him. And so you find in this a... a, a if you will, a plea, a call for God to act in a way that is consistent with His character. Bring the justice that you embody, God. And I would say verse 3, the psalmist leads toward, he's leaking out a little bit of frustration or complaint from his heart. Notice what he says. Lord, how long... Will the wicked, O Lord, how long... And notice that he repeats. He calls for vengeance twice. Then he asks the question twice. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? He's kind of saying, God, you know what? I'm kind of sick of hearing corrupt people brag about how well their corruption is working. Okay? God's not playing on His terms. And so the psalmist very honestly submits this to God. I'm going to tell you this, okay? The Psalms are largely, in this ca- in, in, let me just say, it. in this setting, this Psalm is descriptive of the Psalmist's heart to God. It's exactly how he talked to God. Okay, is it saying that's how you and I should talk to God? Okay, if it's a prescriptive text, and the Psalmist says this is how you should talk to God, boom. Okay, what is it? It's the Psalmist capturing the frustration that you and I experience. He's one of us. He lives in a fallen world. And he's wrestling with the injustice, and he just bursts. God, how long will they be jubilant? How long are you going to let them celebrate while your people suffer? Right? And so he's imploring with God. And I want you to notice that there's a very specific nature to, uh, <clears throat> and aspect of this request. He's calling God to act. And he's making known that he's experiencing a, little, a, a lot of discomfort with the way things are going. And then what he does is to wait his case... He gives a specific list of the jubilance of the offenders. <clears throat> Notice verse 4. They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. And then four verbs are used to describe. They crush your people. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. <coughs> now, if you were to go to James chapter 1 and verse 27, you would find that true religion is what? To care for widows and orphans in their affliction. What is the psalmist doing? Saying, "God, do And remember, prayer is never forgot informational. God didn't say to the psalmist, "Thank you. I missed that." <laughs> All right, it's not. No, he the psalmist knows God is aware and he's speaking the sense of frustration in his heart. Calling God to work, calling God to act. I think all of us have gone through that. We're thinking, Does God see this? Does he, see Does he know that? Does He know someone's doing that to me or to my child or to my friend? Or to... and then verses four and seven, <clears throat> which come on each side of the accusations, they pour out arrogant words. They're full of boasting. Verse seven, they say, "The Lord doesn't see." The God of Jacob, the covenant God of the people of Israel, of which the psalmist is a part, he's kind of unaware. The psalmist is thinking to himself, that really ticks me off. That irritates me at the very depths of my being. And so he goes to God with it. And it's almost a cut to you. You hear them? You hear what they're saying? At one level here, you have. The psalmist astonished at the patience of God. He is stunned that God would be patient and open with these people. And here's what I think. I think that that patience of God that he just inscripturated begins to affect him. Because when I go to verse 8, I find something, it's almost like, He's got some schizophrenia. He's read this pressure is so strong that he's vacillating between what he knows about God in terms of justice and what he knows about God in terms of patience. And he's he's trying to get it to work in his head. And it's a struggle for us. So verse 80 says, to the oppressors, take heed you senseless ones among the people. You fools. When will you become wise? It's almost like he, he takes the complaint and then he speaks out to them. He appeals to the wicked as he ponders the patience of God. And then he, he gives them reason for caution. It's like he says, you guys better be careful. If you keep playing this game, judgment will come. It is reluctant, but it is necessary. The response of a holy God to human rebellion. And then he, he, he loads up on them. And this is, <clears throat> these are rhetorical questions. They demand an affirmative answer, okay, And they're a means, a poetic means of weighting the case against these people. He says, does he who implanted the ear not hear? I mean, all the insolent, ridiculous, troubling, crass things you're saying, does he not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? The one who created sight has it. He is omniscient, knows everything. Does he who disciplines nations not punish Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? And then this is, verse 11 to me is so sobering. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are futile. You know why God doesn't get all anxious? When things look really tilted and weighted. Why doesn't God ever hit the panic button? Because God is able to bring truly overwhelming force. In the protection of his people, he never gets caught. Like, I'm I'm decent at ping pong with certain people, unless I'm playing like Ryan Duvenick. okay, and Doug Feinbutter. <laughs> they destroy me, okay. But I'm decent at. It. Sometimes what I'll do if I'm just playing, I'll just lay back a little bit and then I'll catch up later. Sometimes that don't work out real well, <laughs> okay. All of a I'm so far behind, I can't. I don't have enough stuff to get this game back. It's so frustrating. God has never, ever. Had that happen? He does see. He does hear. And really, what is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is appealing to the fact that the Creator God is fully aware of everything you do. Later, the the writers of Scripture will say, everything is naked and open to the eyes of Him with whom you must do business one day. And that comes as a sobering warning. But it is also a plea, isn't it? And so the psalmist is, is in the middle of his frustration, still evangelistic in his heart. He knows the grace of God towards him. He knows that he has not received what he deserves or he wouldn't even be speaking. And folks, when that starts to settle, it will cause us in the midst of struggle to have a heart that wants to reach out to people and bring reconciliation where there has been tragic injustice. That's why when the Mennonites had the attack years ago out in Lancaster, and that man came in and killed a number of those children, that they went to the funeral of that man. Why? Because Jesus said, love your enemies. Identify them and love them. Don't ignore all their wrong. Call them out on it so that they may flee to the grace of God. And know that God is gracious, but also know that God is just. And I think the psalmist is saying to them, listen, opportunity is fading. Your plans are futile. They may appear at some level successful, but in the end, God triumphs. And that, for the psalmist, is a resolution and a bit of comfort. You know, the book of First Peter says that the patience of God is opportunity for repentance. Man, think, if God gave me what I deserve every time, I would not be here. He's patient. And the psalmist is saying in the midst of his rant, he's like, God is so patient. And something in this touches his heart, and he calls to them. But he wants them to know that the God who hasn't acted yet knows everything that has happened. Well, verse 12 through 15, (coughs) the psalmist flees into the presence of God. And I want you to just follow along with me, if you will. Blessed, O Lord, is the man you discipline. Uh, And discipline is this. It's the parental idea of taking interest in the progress through corrective measures. In the progress of one through corrective measures. It's what every good dad on Father's Day does. Courageously. Courageously. Disciplines. Confronts. Guides. Directs. It is the expression of love. And so the psalmist says, blessed is the one you discipline. The man you teach from your law. The one who hears your boundaries, your moral absolutes, and abides by them. Their life is oriented toward blessing even though there may be trouble around it and that's the setting of the psalmist isn't it he sees himself as blessed in the midst of the circumstances of the causing of the complaint and say god do you see isn't that beautiful so in the midst of your troubles get to know god the prayers here are not to give information to god they're to relate to god they're to open up a conversation with god and to enjoy his presence Verse 13, you grant me relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. Okay, it's a very interesting statement, isn't it? You grant me, in the midst of what I'm going through, you you tend to cause fresh springs to come up and they bring me comfort. They encourage my heart along the way. But at the end of the day, what is the psalmist banking on? He's not banking on that God gives a break and he gives me comfort and God gives a break and he gives me comfort. No, what's he banking on? He's banking on that at one day, a pit is dug for the wicked. And the idea is that's the termination point. Okay, one day the patience of God ends and the justice of God comes. That's the idea. And then the psalmist says this For the Lord will not reject his people, he will never forsake his inheritance. I love the song, he never lets go. He will not reject his people, he will never forsake. It, Here's the idea, folks. If you study the idea of the loyal covenant love of God in the Old Testament, the word is hesed. It's the word for mercy. It's unf- most. Of, I think the NIV always translated unfailing love. It is love that never lets go. You know, as a parent, I would communicate to my daughters that our relationship was unbreakable. And the psalmist is saying, my relationship with God is unbreakable, no matter what I've done. That. That kind of love, that kind of commitment from the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, move forward to the church, the people of God. That kind of commitment is what strengthens the psalmist in this this season of struggle. God, I'm holding on to you and you never let go of me. It it, it becomes a a source of comfort and he's doing it in the midst of the struggle. He still has a beef with God. But as he's moved into God's presence... The beef fades and God exalts. Okay, and perspective, I think what happens here, perspective in this psalm is changing. What the psalmist is focusing on, you can can start to feel a change. It's going to swing back, but you can feel movement in his heart. The Lord will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness, and the upright will follow it. Folks, here's what's cool. For the upright person, they are attracted to the justice of God. They're, they don't recoil from it. They're attracted to it. And when God's decrees come forth and guide, they willingly follow it. The evidence that you are a child of God's is that you love His justice. You love His gospel. And you love His way. My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. And the sound of God, I, I, I'm going to follow you. That's the commitment. In that No matter what's going on, I am resolved to stay on the path that you call me to in spite of what i see as injustice in spite of your patience that irritates me at times i will follow you because in the midst of your waiting i am still experiencing your unfailing love your commitment to me the reason i expressed that to my daughters is this that th- no matter what you do i will still love you and you are still my daughter is that i believe that the power of love that unfailing love is stronger than any consequence i could ever give wasn't a threat, it was a promise. And the promises of God are what bind us to Him, aren't they? They draw us, they attract us to a God who seems to be lethargic and waiting and yet attractive. Unless the Lord had given me help, verse 17, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. And what that means simply is that God has in some way mitigated the pain that the psalmist is going through. He is He is tailoring it to the circumstance. First Corinthians 10 13 comes to mind. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, he will always make a way out so that you can stand up in it. He makes a way for us to honor him in the most difficult circumstances. That's his promise of unfailing love. In that circumstance, psalmist, I'm with you. Who will rise up for me? Verse sixteen against the wicked. Who will take a stand for me against evil doers? Unless the Lord had helped me, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. That's powerful. The response of God's support was an evidence of His love, so the psalmist could say, "Your love, which spawns all these wonderful actions, supported me." Every good thing coming to him was an evidence of the unfailing love of God. Now, here's what's happening. And I'm, I, I thought, how do I do this illustration? And So if this comes across corny, just forgive me because I think it's corny. Okay. So don't tell me afterwards that was corny. I know it is, okay? I just want you to think about perspective, okay? If I take an object, and uh, John Baker will be my, John, stand up for a second real quick. You know, this handsome young man. I'm not taking a picture either okay (laughs) all right if I hold this phone here I can't see John okay and so in this analogy John is God that's a scary thought and this is my problem okay if this problem is filling up the screen of my life guess who I can't see I can't see God so in this account what is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is distancing himself from his troubles so that he can see around it and all around it that God is there. That's the shift in perspective. At the beginning what is he saying? They gloat, they repay, they revile, they're killing you can sit down. They're killing people and he he's profoundly frustrated. But now all of a sudden he's saying, "But you lo- God, you do love me." And you are faithful to me. And one day you will bring justice. And when that happens, my problems get further away. And you come into fuller view. And I see a sovereign God. What hasn't happened? The psalmist's circumstances have not changed. They haven't changed. His mind is completely shifted. To the point where he cares about the evildoer. And wants him to know God. Right? And to the point where he now gives praise to God. And that praise ends in his heart as a statement of joy. And this is what I want you to see. When I said my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. When? In the midst of the trouble. Consolation, comfort. Here's what I love. When you go to the New Testament, when, when Jesus says, I'm going to the Father, but I'm going and I'm coming. Uh, he says, it is essential for you that I go away so that the Consolator can come. Okay, now I'm using the word for comfort or consolation. Okay? The Consolator is the person of God in the presence of the Spirit in your life. You know what the Psalmist says? As, as I have meditated on you and uttered my complaint. But, uh, folks, I want to say this. Uttering his complaint is part of the process. It's part of the means by which we are honest with God, completely honest with God, about all the complaints that we have. Transparent. That's what a good relationship can do. A, a, a good parent-child relationship can be evidenced in the fact that a child can come to mom or dad and say, I don't like how you handled this. And we say to them, I have to say to my daughters, you can say anything to me that you want to say to me. You must say it with the right attitude. You must say it with the acknowledgement that God has put mommy and I in a position of authority in your life. You have to honor that, say whatever you want to say. And kids will say some pretty harsh things. I used to think the Spirit went quadraphonic in my house with four women, right? That He was speaking from all directions. <laughs> Your consolation brought me joy. That's a beautiful picture. When I, I'm my foot slipping, boom, boom, I'm happy. Are His feet firm yet? I don't know. Doesn't tell me. It tells me that He's seeing things from a different perspective. God's there, God's in charge. So this difficulty isn't as as hard to bear. In fact, it's almost tolerable. Whereas earlier it seemed like, come on, God, shine forth (laughs) and bring your justice. And the psalmist is now resolving. I I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. In our men's Bible study, Willie Cites keeps saying to us, praise prompts joy. If you're wrestling with the lack of joy in your heart with God, you need to spend time thinking about who he is and being honest with him. Okay, and I'm telling you, both of these are part of the honesty. The psalmist's complaint is really an appeal to the character of God's justice. It's kind of like I thought you were like this, but it doesn't seem like you're. But I know you are. But it doesn't seem that way right now. That's honest. And then God gives him, God says, "Okay, my foot is slipping. I I am at a point. I'm going to go down. You sustain me." My pastor, I remember uh, Tim Jordan, Doug, preaching a sermon. It it was titled, God is seldom early but never late. And I think the psalmist is learning that. We want God to act because we think it's over. If God doesn't act soon, I'm not going to make it. He's not strong enough to sustain me and support me. And you find as you move through that, that the Lord is my shepherd. And that even in the valley of the shadow of death, he's enough. And when you know he's enough, guess what happens? Your problems get smaller and God gets bigger. You get a new perspective, and you get joy. That's what a good relationship with God brings. Not a vengeful heart, but a joyful heart. He never forsakes. <coughs> Last thought. I didn't realize I covered my point there. Here's something I would say to you in, in, light, of, uh, <coughs> in light of verse 18. Verse 18 and I think even some of the other passages here, there there is a sense in which the psalmist in front of God names his request very specifically. He's not just mumbling on with God. There is a very specific, intentional approach to God for the psalmist as he comes. And he is pleading with God and asking God to intervene and to work. Folks, when you go to God, be specific. A few weeks ago, Doug preached on Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious... For nothing that's the word here when my heart was anxious. What's the, what's, what did uh, Paul say in the middle of prison? He said, "Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer, which is asking, all, all the word prayer means is asking, okay? And supplication takes on the idea of intense asking. okay? In everything by asking and intense asking, let your request be made known to God. Tell God what's bothering you. Put her on the table with him and then praise him and watch what happens. And I had not thought about this much growing up, especially in my early Christian life, that what brings joy is praising God, is worshiping God. That's what I find when I come here and sing songs of praise to God in the morning. That my heart is encouraged. My circumstances haven't changed, but I see them differently. That's what happens to the psalmist here. So real quick, this last section, I'll just read through it. <clears throat> Verse 20. I just lo- I love this question. Because <laughs> now he's come to the place where the covenant love of God is what, yeah, that's, that holds me. And notice what he says next. He says, can a corrupt throne be allied with you, one that brings misery by his decrees? Can God be bought or bribed? I think I live in a world where just about everybody is in the realm of politics in America. Just about everybody is vulnerable. To being bought, to being nudged, to being moved from solid core principles. You know what the psalmist says in the midst of a world where that is true. My God cannot be bought. He can't be bribed. A corrupt, a corrupt, um, oh, I can't think of the word. Well, I'll just use the word government. A corrupt government is unattractive to God. There is no. There's no temptation on the part of God to want to ally with those who do evil. He is for you and he is against evil decidedly. And it is the necessary and just response of a holy God to human rebellion. And the psalmist comes back and he says, can, and rhetorically, can a corrupt throne be allied with you, one that brings misery by its decrees? They band together against the righteous. And the psalmist goes back, okay, because he said it looks like that's what they're doing. They band together against the righteous. Presumably, the psalmist is an attempting righteous person. He's trying to live by the decrees of God and is experiencing severe enough opposition that he goes to God and, God, let your vengeance shine forth. They band together against the righteous. They condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my fortress. That's what happens in this interaction with God. At the end of the day, my hiding place, my safe place, my safe house is God. And my God, the rock in whom I take refuge, he will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. That's harsh terminology. But that's the resolution of the psalm. At the end of the day, the wicked have their opportunity to come to God because the patience of God, the waiting of God is opportunity for repentance. At the end of the day, those that refuse to repent will experience the justice of God. Now, let me jump into the gospel. Is God just in forgiving me and you? That's the salient question, isn't it? On what basis does the wrath of God, His Reluctant, yet necessary response to my sinfulness, which deserves death. How can that be taken away from me and God still be just, correct, proper? How? The answer is the cross of Christ. What should fall on me in terms of the justice of God, or even I'll use the word stronger, the wrath of God or the vengeance of God for my rebellion, I deserve judgment. If it doesn't fall on me, then God is not just. Unless that judgment falls on another who stands in my place on Calvary's cross. That's Isaiah 53, isn't it? The wrath of God that was directed towards me fell on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We're restored. We're brought back to a relationship. Not because of our religious performance, but because of the action of God moving in our direction through his son, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place, to bear the wrath of God that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. And here's what happens, folks. When you are forgiven by that kind of grace, you will not find it makes you proud and arrogant. You will find it makes you unbelievably humble and patient and able to forgive and to follow the way of God. Now, one text came to my mind over and over as I was working through this. I live in a world <coughs> where I, I get frustrated. I I, I, I get, I'm, I'm a generally up person, but if I really spend time looking at the wrong things, I get discouraged. Okay, and it's a matter of perspective and focus. Okay, I, I can lose my way. And in, in my heart, when I see something like last Sunday in Orlando, when I see just anything where there's this perverse injustice this brokenness that wounds and hurts and when I see that I in my heart I have a longing for something you know what I long for and particularly in a political season when you know nobody's going to do what they say you who can you trust no one trust the Lord alone (laughs) okay but in the midst of that I long for a I'm going to tell you what I think is the perfect government okay I think the perfect form of government would be a benevolent dictator Okay, a perfect benevolent dictator. Okay, who always has the interest of others first. Democracy, it's fine, but when it's in the hands of fallen people, you see what we get. Uh, what I love is Revelation 19. I just typed this up, I'm going to read this for you. Revelation 19. As we observe the fact that things are not as they should be and we struggle, we know that one day when Jesus comes, they will be as they should be, and were originally. Here's what, this, what Revelation says. John says, I saw heaven standing open. What is it? The doors that had been closed, apparently not knowing what's going on, are open. That's the picture. When the doors were open from a castle, from a city, something is about to spring forth. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse. His rider was called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. With justice. Can't trust human government. You can't trust yourself. But there's one you can trust. And what I find as I read through this kind of a text, my mind is drawn towards that final end when Christ comes. And here's what the Bible says. Written on his thigh are two words. In the most prominent visible position on a horse is written faithful and true. Meaning you can count on him. And even though you're caught in the middle of the storms of this life, don't turn back. Because the Psalm, the, the John says one day, I, I saw the gates were open meaning the God who has been patient and waiting is ready to move and act. And what I long for when I see brokenness, I long for a world where that stuff doesn't happen or not to follow cars around the parking lot. (laughs) See if they're taking advantage of someone else, just acting unjust in a purely inconsequential way. But it still is like when justice comes, you're like, yes, oh, on a grander scale. Oh, on a grander scale, what a glory that will be. When the God of heaven comes down and brings justice to a world that desperately needs it for His glory, it is. And for the joy of His people, it is. Father, as we conclude this morning, we are grateful that You are a God of great love, of loyal, unfailing love. Thank You that You are a God of justice and... God, we we sit in the middle of the storms of this life and we lose our way, we lose perspective, we allow trouble to fill up the screen. God, help us to push trouble towards you so that we will begin to see you around and in and through all that we're experiencing. And we will become people of deep, abundant, great, profound, overwhelming joy in the Lord. Like Nehemiah, Lord, let the joy of the Lord be our strength. And if we're slipping, God, if I have a friend here this morning who is struggling, who is slipping in the trouble and storms of this life, God, help them to cry out to you this morning, God, I am slipping. And Lord, you will uphold them like Peter sinking in the water. Lord, save me. God, let that be our prayer. Lord, if there's a friend here this morning who has not yet seen that Jesus is their wrath bearer, the one who bore the consequence of their sin, God, I pray that you would draw that heart to yourself this morning, that that individual would come to you and say, God, I am a rebel. I deserve your just vengeance. You have been patient with me. Today, I flee to the cross of Christ and find hope in my glorious, crucified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It's for His glory that we pray together and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together and sing.